I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In 1944, Abbeville, Alabama, a young African-American woman was abducted and assaulted by seven white men on her way home from church. During a time when the world was against her, this woman bravely fought for her justice, and ultimately it was this woman's courage that would help spark a mass movement for racial justice. This is the Reese Taylor story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Aim. How are you? Good. I'm sad to say we're remote today. Still remote, still living, still in between houses. (laughs) Who knows how long, but that's okay. At least we can still uh, talk. I know. I miss sitting in the studio with you. I cannot wait to be able to do that again. I miss it too. I also miss our happy hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But you you had a recent good happy hour and a good trip, right? I did. I met a bunch of our listeners. Where? At ASC, the American Society of Criminology. One of our listeners is a fellow professor in criminology, so I hung out with her a little. Oh, that's cool. And then some of our listeners are PhD students. Oh, I love that. They were awesome. I had such a great time. I wish you were there. I'm sorry I wasn't, but maybe next year. Actually, next year probably will happen for me. I'm glad you got to go and meet some of our patrons and have a good conference, though. Yeah, it was very cool. So, Megan, a few exciting things going on in December. On December 15th, our patrons will get our next episode. And I have to tell you, this is going to be a crazy one. Uh, Can you give us a hint without giving it away? Sure. 
So let's put it this way, Megan. Her story of survival is going to make you wonder how anybody could have survived the ordeal that this woman went through. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I look forward to it as usual. And patrons will get it on December 15th. Yep. And patrons will also, we will be doing our December AMA sometime before the holidays. So keep an eye out for that. Can't wait to do our next AMA. You know, I love, love, love those. Yes. Love I, geeking out with our listeners. And since our last AMA, we have quite a few new patrons. So I'm super excited to meet some of our new supporters. Oh, me too. Who do we have this time? Want to do some shout outs? Oh, beautiful segue. <laughs> All right, Megan, we have, oh, Megan, we have two Megans. And one Megan actually spells her name the same way as you, Megan T. You know, I barely see that with the H. So All right, I know. Megan T. But then yep. we have another Megan who actually spells it the normal way. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to both of our new Megan supporters. And we thank also, you. Yeah. We also have Leslie from Alabama, Catherine S., JC, and Jenny Wood. Thank you so much for your support. We look forward to meeting all the new people who are joining our group. And Megan, I sent out a huge batch of stickers today. So look forward to getting your stickers soon. Yeah. All of our new patrons, keep an eye out. Your stickers are on their way. And I would like to thank Sydney Anderson for her help with today's research. Oh, Sydney's helped with a couple. Thank you, Sydney. Today's case is very timely given the national conversation surrounding racial justice in our courts. The case we're looking at today is a historical landmark case that brought a lot of these issues to the forefront. So let's get into the story of Reese Taylor. Reese Taylor was born Reese Corbett on December 31st, 1919, and she grew up in Abbeville, Alabama, in a sharecropping family. At this time, sharecropping was a system where a landlord allows a tenant to use their land in exchange for a share of the crops that they harvest. Now, this would encourage tenants to work to produce the biggest harvest they could and also ensure that they would remain tied to the land and they would be unlikely to leave for other opportunities. I remember learning about this in like social studies in like fifth or sixth grade. I teach about it when I teach race and crime. Oh, yeah. It was very common for black families in the South because it was one of the few options they had after the Civil War. Now, remember, they were former slaves and they had no other options. They had no cash, no land, and they needed work to support their families. And Megan, at the same time, you had Southern landowners who had a lot of land, but no cash to pay for labor. Might seem like a reasonable partnership, but sharecropping increased the amount of debt that poor people owed the plantation owners. So in a way, it was similar to slavery. It seems like an extension of slavery. It really was. Yeah. Have you read The New Jim Crow? Yes, uh, yes. It, always, it always makes me think of that because she really explains this. Oh, right. That's right. She does. Yeah. So the sharecroppers owed so much money to the plantation owners that they would just give them all the money they made. Anyway, back to Reese. So Reese's parents were Benny and Alma Corbett, and she had four siblings, one brother and three sisters. Tragically, when Reese was just 17 years old, her mother passed away. And now Reese was left to take care of her younger siblings. She was really considered the woman of the house because she was the oldest woman, and her father was working a lot to support the family. Just a few years later, in 1941, Reese met and married Willie Guy Taylor, and the couple soon welcomed a daughter, Joyce Lee. The Taylor family had rented a sharecropper's cabin in what was referred to as, quote, the colored section of their segregated town in Alabama. It wasn't until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that segregation was made illegal, although it would take several more years, as it normally does, for the states to catch up. Yeah, that's always the case in criminal justice policy. Yep. While Willie was at work, Reese would stay home with Joyce Lee until the little girl turned about three years old. And at that time, Reese went back to work. She was trying to make some extra money for the family. Luckily, Reese's family was nearby and they would take care of the baby. 
On the night of September 3rd, 1944, Reese, who was 24 years old at the time, attended a special evening service at Rock Hill Holiness Church in Abbeville, Alabama. She was with her friend Fanny Daniels and Fanny's teenage son, West Daniels. Sometime just before midnight, the trio began to walk the two-mile trip home from church. Shortly into their walk, however, they noticed the same green Chevrolet truck driving past them multiple times. And when this truck drove past, they were able to see a group of young white men who would stare them down. They would turn around, pull up to them, stare them down until one time they pull up and actually stop. At this point, you have seven white males jumping out of the car with guns and knives drawn. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of the men was a 24-year-old private in the U.S. Army named Herbert Lovett. In the Army. Yep. And he stated very quickly that they were there for Reese. They wanted her. Apparently, they thought that she had hurt a white man earlier that evening. Lovett claimed that the town sheriff had sent them to find her as she was the alleged assailant of this assault that was perpetrated on some white male earlier in the evening. This time, Taylor attempted to run away, but Lovett pointed his gun at her, stating, quote, I'll kill you if you run. Lovett then walked Taylor back to the car and forced her in with the help of the other men, all while pointing the shotgun at her. This is terrifying. They left with Taylor and they let Fanny and West go. Remember, the friend and the friend's teenage son. Right. So Fanny and West immediately went to the Taylor home and reported the kidnapping to her family and called authorities. They wanted to find the sheriff to inform him of the kidnapping. Now, they could not find the sheriff. But meanwhile, the sheriff is the one who ordered these guys to go out and find her, you're saying? So the men said. We don't know if that was true. Got it. It's possible, but... Okay. Instead, they found Will Cook, who was the former chief of police. So Will Cook immediately went out searching for Reese with Reese's father, Benny Corbett. Meanwhile, a blindfolded and terrified Reese was being driven into the woods with the seven men. When the car stopped in a secluded area, Lovett demanded that Reese get undressed, all while still pointing the gun at her, while she begged them to let her go home to her family. One by one, the men viciously assaulted and raped Reese. Lovett had been the first to assault her and demanded that she, quote, act like you do with your husband or I'll cut your damn throat. After this brutal attack, they dropped her off on the side of a dark, quiet highway. Uh, She was blindfolded and wounded, and she attempted to make the long walk home. Before driving off, the men made sure to tell Reese that if she told anyone about the attack, they would come back and kill her. Terrifying. For hours, Reese walked around. It seemed as though she wasn't really sure where she had been dropped off, or, you know, it could be that she was traumatized and in a state of shock that, you know, clouded her ability. Remember, she was blindfolded for a part of the attack. Regardless, at around three in the morning, Reese was finally found near an intersection at the center of town. So she was found, remember her father and the former police chief went out looking for her. They took her to a nearby location where her husband, Willie, along with Fanny and West were there. And at this point, there were also some local law enforcement officers who gathered. Reese bravely reported the gang rape to the authorities present. Among them was Henry County Sheriff George Gamble. While she was unable to provide a detailed description of the men who assaulted her, again, it was dark, she was blindfolded, she was able to describe the vehicle that the men used to kidnap her. Wes Daniel, Fanny's son, recognized some of the men, and he was able to identify a local man by the name of Hugo Wilson. And within less than an hour, he was identified and located. Wilson was. That's quick. Yeah. And it also, that was, not only was it fast that they identified him, it also didn't take long for Wilson to give up the names of his accomplices. Wow. Yep. His accomplices were Dillard York, Billy Howerton, Herbert Lovett, Luther Lee, Joe Culpepper, and Robert Gramble. Now, it's unclear if he was coerced or promised leniency, but Megan, we know the way the system operates and we could assume one or both occurred. Of course. Now, Wilson 
denied the rape. And he told authorities that he and the other men did not force Taylor to have sex, but they actually paid her. And that, in fact, she was a sex worker and they paid her to have sex with them. So gross, but like not unexpected here. No. Wilson was sent home with a $250 fine. So that's almost $4,000 in today's currency. I remember early in the days where, uh, you know, I even teach about this, where, um, I mean, it's still a case, to be honest, but where you could pay your way out of an offense. They were considered finable. It's hard to believe that the sexual assault and abduction of a woman is a finable offense. And as if that's not bad enough, the other men that he names were never arrested or even brought in for questioning. You're kidding. Nope. Luckily, however... This outraged many, and in the days that followed, several news outlets reported the story, and Reese had garnered a lot of support. Not surprisingly, most of the support was in the Black community. There were a few popular media outlets that were reporting on the case. One notable media account was the Chicago Defender. In their newspaper, they ran the headline, quote, Victim of White Alabama Rapists, on the front page, and had the now-famous picture of Reese Taylor sitting dressed very nicely with her husband and her daughter. Glad to see she got some attention. The brutal assault was also reported to the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, in Montgomery, Alabama. Beginning in the early 1900s, the NAACP was the leading advocate for African-American citizens. They responded by sending their best investigator and activist, someone by the name of Rosa Parks. Oh my gosh. Wow. Isn't that great? So Rosa Parks, her father's hometown was actually Abbeville. So she had some tie to the area. But keep in mind, this was more than a decade before she became known for refusing to give up her bus seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama, before she even earned the name as the mother of the civil rights movement. I just got chills. Right? Yeah. So just a brief note on Rosa Parks, who, of course, deserves her own episode and is definitely on our list. In the early 1930s, she had joined the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, and she had been heavily involved as their secretary. And she was in this role for 12 years. So when Parks was arrested on December 1st, 1955, you know, when the Montgomery bus boycott was launched, she had already been very heavily involved in the civil rights movement. Now, when Rosa Parks got on the scene in Abbeville, she went to Taylor's house, and when she was there, she was receiving a lot of, I don't know if you would call it threats, but it was clear that she was not wanted there. The town sheriff made it very clear that he wanted her to leave town, that she was being, quote, a troublemaker. Given her character, though, we're not surprised that even after she was threatened with jail time, she still went back to Abbeville and she continued her investigation into Taylor's case. She was just not phased by the threats. She wouldn't be intimidated. Nope. So Park spent most of her time doing a few things for this case. She would encourage community members to write to politicians. She would try to get media outlets to express the outrage over the treatment of Reese. She also took the written transcript of Taylor's testimony back to the NAACP office in Montgomery. So once there, she and other local activists organized what is called the Committee for Equal Justice for Miss Reese Taylor. And that committee will come into play when we talk about Aftermath. Okay. Meanwhile, things were not going easy for Reese and her family. They were struggling in more ways than one, but they would not give up their fight. Everyone wanted Reese to just stop talking. She was even offered $600 in hush money to just drop everything, but she did refuse and she was clearly motivated by something bigger. Reese and her family were the victims of harassment, pipe bombs. At one point, her house was even set on fire. 
by white vigilantes who were trying to intimidate the woman and her family. Again, they just wanted her to stop talking and drop the case. At one point, Reese, Willie, and Joyce Lee were even forced to move back in with Reese's father as a matter of their safety. And Reese's father would sit in a tree overnight with a gun keeping watch to protect his family. Between October 3rd and October 4th in 1944, a grand jury was convened. Let's pause for a quick minute and just discuss the purpose of a grand jury for those listeners who don't know. So a grand jury's job is really to screen out incompetent, overzealous, malicious prosecutions, right? So these juries have tremendous power. They actually decide whether to return an indictment. In other words, whether a formal charge will be made against a person. So they're, in essence, the investigative body. They have the power to request that the court demand further evidence, including witness testimony or subpoenas of documents. And many people don't realize, but the grand jury is actually independent of the prosecutor and the judge. The prosecutor presents the case to the grand jury. So the prosecution has to actually convince the grand jury that there's probable cause to move forward with an indictment. And the defense has no role in a grand jury, just so people know. And this is why grand juries usually do indict or I think tend to indict. And the defendant has no idea. So you don't have the defense attorney, nor do you have the actual defense. Well, he's not a defendant yet, but nor do you have suspect. Yeah, no, the suspect, you know, you may, I mean, you could be aware that there's a grand jury convening. You're not supposed to. Not, no, you're technically not supposed to, but yeah. But yes, of course you could be. So it's really just a, it's prosecution dominant. Yes. Megan, thinking back to the time and place of this, who do you think made up the grand jury? What gender and race? All white men. All white men. And unfortunately, this was very common at the time. And it's Alabama. And and culturally at the time, you know, even with civil rights legislation, things were culturally still, you know, very um, segregated. Yep. And And we can see clearly now that this violates one Sixth Amendment right to a fair and impartial jury. But it hasn't always been like that. So I just want to give a brief history on racial discrimination and jury selection. Okay. So following the American Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution abolished slavery and guaranteed basic civil rights to African Americans. Right. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 extended this to jury selection. Okay. Then in 1880, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that laws excluding black people from jury service violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay. So things are looking like they're moving in the in the right direction here. It seems like it on the seems surface. Like it. But also we know states always found their way around this. And it was very common to see an all-white jury regardless. But we took a huge step backwards in 1896 when the Supreme Court held that state-mandated segregation laws did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Isn't that just undoing themselves then? Megan, you know this famous landmark case. Plessy v. Ferguson. Yes, Plessy v. Ferguson. So at this time, African-Americans were thus denied access to public, political, and judicial spheres. Then came the famous case of the Scottsboro Boys in 1931, when nine black youths were accused of raping two white women, one of whom, I must say, recanted her testimony. Eight of these defendants were sentenced to death. I could go on and on about this case. I'm not going to, but the reason I highlighted here is, number one, it was an all-white, all-male jury in that case as well. But the appeals in that case ultimately led to two important landmark Supreme Court decisions. Powell versus Alabama. Megan, we teach this one all the time. When the court ruled that criminal defendants are entitled to effective counsel, and more relevant to what we're talking about here, Norris versus Alabama in 1935, which said that blacks may not be excluded systematically from jury service. 
despite the North decision, the practice of excluding black people from juries did not disappear. Why is that, Megan? This is probably because of the peremptory challenges that one gets. And I know peremptory challenges have also been litigated, but you're going to tell the audience what peremptory challenges yeah, are? Yeah, so peremptory challenges are simply the dismissal of jurors without stating a valid cause for doing so. So it's basically a legal workaround. Both sides get a couple of peremptory um, challenges. So it's like, I don't like the way you look. I have a bad feeling about you. And yeah, it's... Yes. So as a lawyer, you can't say, I strike juror five because he's black. No. However, you can say, I strike juror five because I don't like the way he's looking at me or I don't like his attitude. Yep. So... De facto allows you to... <laughs> so here we go. You discriminate. Know. So in 1986, Batson versus Kentucky ruled that a prosecutor's use of a peremptory challenge during the jury selection may not be used to exclude jurors based solely on their race. But again, this is still ha it still happens even today. We don't see all white juries, but we see preemptory challenges being used for bogus reasons. We do. But let's point out, in, in all fairness, this happens on both sides. Each side wants a jury that's going to be most sympathetic to them. So this As doesn't, they should. Yep. Right. So you're looking for the best jury, right? So this doesn't always work like it's like you, you could just exclude, let's say, a black juror. A lot of times you're going to exclude a white juror, a Hispanic, a, a female. You know, it's going to be... Somebody that they think the demographic is going to be favorable to the outcome of their case. Yes. But as we, you know, as we see, it took the courts up till 1986 to recognize that peremptory challengers were being used in this way. No, they knew it. They just, it was, you know, high time. It wasn't they, challenge. I guess. Right. It wasn't, you know, it's, it's high time that someone caught up with it and said it on the record. So, of course, they, they knew, I would imagine. It was just, you know, it's time to play catch up. Yeah. And it may seem obvious that jury discrimination is problematic, right? It's problematic for several reasons, but not just the obvious reason of fairness and due process. Research consistently shows that white juries are more punitive to black defendants. Oh, we know that time and time over again. Right? And there's a few reasons. You know, some research says this is because there's more likely to be bias when a group is homogenous. But I think some of the stronger explanations have to do with both implicit and explicit bias. Right. So we know that racial composition matters. Regardless of the fact that the jury was clearly biased in terms of gender and race, we also should acknowledge how women in general are scrutinized when they are victims of sexual crimes at the hands of men. Absolutely. Megan, we wrote about this, right? How false views about rape lead to victim blaming, shaming, and other issues. Rape myths, long-held rape myths. Yes, and we co-authored an article on rape myths. We sure so, did. Do you want to talk a little bit about what rape myths are since... You're an expert. Um, rape myths in general are prejudicial, stereotyped, and false beliefs about sexual assaults and the rape victims who are involved. They often serve to excuse sexual aggression and create hostility towards the victim, which really causes bias in the prosecution of these types of cases. So what are some examples? Um, there are several rape myths that blame the victim, and, and they include some of the following, and I quote on these, you know, she asked for it, or she's lying, or she wanted it, even worse. Um, these are, you know, she deserved it. Look what she was wearing. Um, well, those she's kinda... a sex worker. Or, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, and so those are myths about the victim. Myths about the perpetrator, I've heard, you know, he didn't mean to... Um, he couldn't help it, or he's not the type of guy who has to rape a woman. Oh, sounds like Brock Turner case. It, it, it oh, Yeah, it does, actually. God. Or it was no big deal. So basically trivializing the crime of sexual assault. I know we say it a lot often, Megan, but techniques of neutralization. These are classic techniques, classic. neutralizing the guilt of a perpetrator. Absolutely. Denying responsibility. 
And placing the blame on the victim. This yeah. is actually that that's fitting very well with techniques. Yeah. So Reese has a lot working against her right now. Unfortunately, she does. Yeah. Not surprisingly, given what we just learned, after just five minutes of deliberation, the all-white male jury dismissed the case. I knew that was coming. Yeah. I didn't even have to tell you that part. Nope. Right? Luckily, this did not stop the advocates who were fighting for her justice. So Rosa and a few of her activist friends, such as W.E.B. Dubois, oh. Mary Church Terrell, and Langston Hughes, pushed hard on this case. So th- what this committee did was they helped raise public awareness and not just in Reese's case, but for the mistreatment of black women in general. So Reese's case was kind of like the catalyst, but they took this committee to do additional work. And then you also had Esther Cooper Jackson, who was an activist with the Southern Negro Youth Congress, who she really was instrumental in bringing attention to Reese's case. She was pressing for anybody and everybody to write letters to Alabama Governor Sparks to convict the men involved in Taylor's rape. Now, people all over the world were getting involved in writing letters to Governor Sparks. I just want to read a little bit from Parks's own letter that she wrote to the governor. She said, quote, as a citizen of Alabama, I urge you to use your high office to reconvene the Henry County grand jury at the earliest possible moment. Alabamians are depending upon you to see that all obstacles which are preventing justice in this case be removed. I know that you will not fail to let the people of Alabama know that there is equal justice for all of our citizens. And these letters, including Rosa Parks' letter, were the impetus for a second investigation. Oh, wow. Yes, the governor sent investigators to gather more information on the case. And after being questioned during this investigation, three of the men allegedly confessed to the crime. You're kidding. No, so you would think that would be enough to try the case? I would think that's, I mean, that's serious movement. Nothing? On February 14th, 1945, this is more than four months after the first grand jury dismissed the case, a second all-white grand jury was held based on the new evidence of the men's confessions, but still none of the men were prosecuted. A second grand jury with the confessions failed to indict. I mean, I, I am shocked, but I'm not, unfortunately. Despite the outcome, Taylor's case was a major step towards the formation of the civil rights movement. The Committee for Equal Justice for Reese Taylor expanded its scope and focus on what they called, quote, waging war on the ritual rape and everyday assault of black women. Many historians say that this committee's ability to mobilize the local people and to really rally national attention laid the foundation for the formal civil rights movement. That's, you know what's incredible, too, is that I really didn't know her name until this case. Megan, we think the same because my next thought was going to be why don't we learn about this in school? Is it because it involves sexual assault? It must be because... I mean, Rosa Parks, who did a lot, obviously, is the symbol, you know, s- refusing to to. This was sit a decade the... prior. Right. So, I, I mean, I can't understand why... I, I, I can tell you I never heard this name in school. I, I, I would remember something like this. And, and I... I'm embarrassed to say that I actually teach a course on race and crime, and I consider myself very well-versed in Black history, and I myself... I heard the name, but I myself did not realize how much it actually started this, you know, civil rights movement. And I do think it has to do with the fact that there was sexual assault, the fact that there was, you know, denial by the white men that this happened. And it may be because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to the state of Alabama and anyone else who failed to, you know, move forward with the prosecution of these perpetrators. I guess that could, all those reasons could have created the perfect storm for why we don't hear about this, but I'm glad I'm learning about it now. Yeah. So things were moving in the right direction on a macro level. Like I said, there started to be a mobilization. It started to be a movement, but things were not going well for Reese. 
This brutal gang rape had left many emotional and physical scars. Sadly, she was unable to have any more children due to injuries that were sustained during the attack. I had a feeling that was coming. Yep. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And her and her husband also separated in the 1960s, which, you know, we know sometimes after such a traumatic event, it's hard for, you know, they went through a lot, unfortunately. Very hard. It's not only that, that it's a traumatic event. She had trauma upon trauma, the victimization upon victimization. And the whole family was victimized and brutalized by the community. Yeah. And he actually ended up passing away at the young age of 48 in 1966. Her ex-husband? Yeah. Wow. Then tragically, just a year later, her daughter, Joyce Lee, died in a car accident at the age of 25. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Oh, my God. Reese had continued sharecropping in Abbeville until she moved to Florida in the late 60s, and she lived really a quiet life. And as most cases do... This case faded from public attention. So regardless of, you know, despite the involvement of Rosa Parks and the NAACP and some movement, it kind of faded the case. And again, we never hear about it. And, you know, we never hear about it in our history classes. So she never got justice at all? Well, it depends what you consider justice. So in 2010, historian Danielle L. McGuire brought fresh attention to Taylor's ordeal and provided the link of Taylor's case to the civil rights movement. Now, McGuire did this through her publication of a book titled At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. Now, I suggest everyone read it. I started it. I did not finish it yet, but it's an incredible book. I would say it's up there with Michelle Alexander's book. So just a year after the publication of this book, in 2011, the Alabama legislator finally issued a formal apology to Reese Taylor for its, quote, failure to prosecute her attackers. This came nearly 67 years after her brutal ordeal. Well, I hate to ask the obvious, but was Reese still alive? Reese Taylor actually lived until she was 98 years old. And <gasps> wow. She- she passed away December 28, 2017. And this was just a few weeks after the historical documentary called The Rape of Reese Taylor was released. I got chills again. Yeah, I urge you all to watch this documentary. It is incredible. And I'm going to show it to my students in Race and Crime for sure. So some say, you know, why why an apology now? I do believe that the, uh, the attention McGuire's book brought to the case of Reese and the way it attached her to the civil rights movement I really think that brought some renewed attention to the case. But either way, I'm glad she was alive to hear this formal apology. Well, look, I don't like what happened and neither do you, but it's never too late to right a wrong. So even it, whatever it took to right a wrong, she never got justice earlier on. If she at least got an apology, a public declaration, some acknowledgement, maybe that gave her some peace. But again, it's just it's never too it's not too late to fix something that was wrong. I agree. And her legacy lives on. Her fight for justice and her refusal to stay quiet helped shed light on the sexual victimization of black women everywhere and raise awareness for the often ignored issue of sexual assault during the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. Reese has been heralded as an American hero who spoke up in the face of racism, hate, and sexual abuse. After issuing the formal apology, Alabama Representative Terry A. Sewell even said that, quote, by standing up to injustice over six decades ago, Reese Taylor inspired generations of men and women to hold perpetrators of sexual violence accountable. And I would agree. I mean, she was a trailblazer, clearly ahead of her time, because really this fight would be would come to be known as the Me Too movement of the civil rights movement. Wow, that's really incredible. Yeah, many people credit black women during Jim Crow South as the true leaders of the Me Too movement. 
Oh, you we know? just didn't have hashtags back then in right. social media. Right. No. And I, I don't think I would have thought of that way either. Yeah. And, you know, Until Reece- you just presented it. Yeah. And Reese Taylor is just one of the many women who helped kickstart the historical movement. This fight would eventually turn into a movement to fight for social justice to end legalized racial discrimination, disenfranchisement and racial segregation. So I think all the strides we've made since can really be traced back to what was going on during the time of Reese Taylor. What an incredible story of victim turned survivor turned trailblazer. Yes, we love those. I think so, yeah. Currently, black women still desperately need protection from sexual violence. According to the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, 35% of black women are victims to sexual violence of some form during their lifetimes. So what can our listeners do to help continue fighting for the protection of black women? So for one, you could become a member of the NAACP. By simply signing up, you can join a network of activists standing up to injustice, fighting back against systemic racism, and answering the call for equality. There are also other organizations that specifically work to protect black women against violence and injustice. The National Black Women's Justice Institute is dedicated to eliminating racial and gender barriers for black women, girls, and their families. Now, this organization addresses issues like criminalization, economic marginalization, domestic violence, and more. Ujima is another organization that is on the forefront of new training and outreach tools to reduce violence against black women. So this place is a clearinghouse for research literature, webinars, national issue forums, regional trainings. They have a lot of resources on their website. You should definitely check them out. You'll be able to find this organization and the others cited in our show notes. Finally, if you or someone you know has been victimized and needs assistance, there are places you can go for help. RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and they create and operate the National Sexual Assault Hotline. They can be reached at 800-656-HOPE, and you can find their information in our show notes. Megan, before we end today, is there anything you wanted to add? I don't think there's any need for theories or did the system get it right here? I mean, obviously, no, but I do have a question and maybe I just missed this. These we don't know if these men were actually directed by anyone to target Reese or did they or were they just angry? You know, yeah, um, it's unclear. If you recall, they told Reese they were there at the sheriff's asking. That was never corroborated. I don't know if the men were uh, targeting Reese because there was an assault against one of their friends and they mistook Reese for somebody else or if they were just using that as an excuse. It's unclear. Um, I guess the only reason I asked, too, is because there were two females, but they let one go. Yeah. And that to me was confusing because with seven men, I would have guessed that they still would have targeted two females. So perhaps they thought they had some... You know, I, I, there's obviously no motivation, but I was just curious if a motive, when, when they confessed, did anyone confess to the motive or that really didn't come to light? I, I didn't find that. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, of course. Reese was also much younger than her friend Fanny. So I don't know if they were just targeting her because maybe they thought she was more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, Fanny's son was also with them. So I don't know if Fanny's son was maybe trying to protect his mom and receive. I'm not really sure. Um, Those are all good points and obviously all possible. I was just curious at the takeaway of this. Mm -hmm. Um, This case was really eye-opening for me. I've never heard of it. I'm glad that you shared it. One of the things that I do teach about um, in women in crime especially is how underreported sexual assault is. And, 
even though Reese reported it, which was incredibly brave at the time and, and right, um, black women do tend to underreport even more so um, than white women when it comes to sexual assault. And there are certain cultural reasons and, and also mistrust of law enforcement, which, you know, happens. So I think it's great. I didn't know about some of these resources that you just shared with us. That, that was new to me. So I'm glad to hear that we're at least trying to level up in terms of addressing violence against black females. So I just wanted to end by saying thank you, Amy, for bringing us this important case. And I hope that, you know, everyone feels like they learned as much as I did today. Thank you, Megan. And before we head out today, we have one question from Catherine. Yeah, I saw the question too. So here it is. I originally wanted to be a criminologist, but eventually decided to pursue a career as a nurse. But I could never let go of my criminology. I'm about to graduate from nursing school and recently discovered the field of forensic nursing. This involves sexual assault examinations as well as caring for victims of abuse, violence, and rape. I think this would be a great mix of both of my interests. My question is, have either of you worked with forensic nurses or victims of rape or violence? And what advice do you have regarding working with this population? So Megan, I haven't worked much with this population. I've worked with some nurses who work in correctional facilities, but that's a bit different than forensic nursing. I think it's important to note that this is a very emotionally taxing job. I also have not worked with this population, I have to say. I know that um, forensic nurses work with, uh, you know, anyone who has been a victim of a crime of violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, I would say this is um, really hard work to do, but really important, and it is a specialty. And I definitely think you have to have the right disposition. And, you know, in some ways you have to have, I guess, a stomach of steel to be able to do this because it could be very taxing on you emotionally. So it would have also like healthy outlets, you know, ways to kind of cope with some of the stress that goes along with taking on, you know, stress of others. Also, as part of their job duties, Forensic nurses sometimes will collect and document evidence. So like, um, you know, perform rape kits and really information that is crucial for investigators. And I've even heard of forensic nurses being called upon to testify if a case goes to trial. So it's something, you know, just something to think about. Yeah, I think it's very important work, though. And I really applaud anyone who is able to do this tough kind of work. I absolutely do, too. Thanks for the question and good luck with this line of work and pursuing this. I think that's great. All right. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the American Psychological Association, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the Washington Post, womanshistory.org, blackpass.org, nbc.org, nps.gov, history.com, naacp.org, and New York Times. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.